Good morning. This morning we're going um, to continue our study that we started last week while looking at a very popular portion of Scripture, a very popular sermon that Jesus gave, perhaps on more than one occasion. Last week we began looking at a sermon of Jesus' Jesus's that Luke records for us in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. And last week I said that we would take this sermon and we would break it up in a three-part message detailing for us the kingdom life, okay? And so this week is part two of Jesus's famous sermon found here in Luke, a sermon that some people refer to as the Sermon on the Plain because Luke tells us that Jesus gave this message on a flat or a level place. Others suggest that this is the parallel account of Matthew's recording of Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, and they simply suggest that Luke gave this Uh, information about a flat area that was upon a mountainside. And so it doesn't uh, end up being a a contradiction. It it could have been an open spot or a flat spot there where he gathered together. Okay, Uh, Whether this was the same exact event can't be said definitively. I do lean to believe that this is a separate teaching that Luke records uh, that was a version of the same teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew when he was on the mountainside with his disciples. But if you think it's the same message, it really doesn't make a big difference, okay? Uh, either way can be viewed, uh, either view can be supported from a biblical perspective, and it really doesn't change the main points that Jesus is teaching uh, in either account. And so if you were with us last week, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of just summary, a little bit of review. Uh, maybe if you weren't with us last week, this will help just kind of catch you along. Uh, last week, we first looked at the kingdom priorities of the kingdom life, okay? The kingdom priorities in verses 20 through 26. And in those verses, uh, Luke records four beatitudes and four woes that detail for us the priorities of the kingdom. Okay, Jesus was teaching his disciples about how things in God's kingdom, they're valued differently from the way things are valued in the world. What's important and what takes precedence in God's kingdom is not the same as what the world views as important. Jesus spoke of how uh, we as believers and participants of God's kingdom have been blessed with God's divine favor and how God's divine favor upon us should impact the kind of person that we are. When we looked at the Beatitudes, we reminded ourselves that these aren't a list of things that we do. It is a description of who we ought to be in Christ. Because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are blessed, and we ought to be poor in spirit, understanding, realizing our need for God's grace and how it is only through God's grace that we have any hope at all. And that ought to produce in us a, a humble spirit. Okay? Jesus also spoke of how we ought to hunger and thirst for more of the Lord, for more of Jesus, for more of his righteousness. He spoke of how our hearts, they, they ought to break for the lost and how God is glorified when we are persecuted for his name's sake. The woes that Jesus spoke of were contrasted with the Beatitudes, the blessings, okay? The idea was quite simple. The woes, they speak of anguish and grief and misery, Jesus said that those who live for this world's kingdom will see that inevitably it only leads to woe, to anguish, to despair, and to misery. And the application for us was quite simple, right? Do we want to live for the kingdom of God, okay, for the kingdom of heaven, or do we want to live for the kingdom of this world? What is most important to us? 
and that's kind of brings us up to where we're at now in this sermon, okay? As we continue our study of this famous sermon, we're going to turn to the second section, which I've entitled Kingdom Principles. Uh, Now, a principle is defined as, and I quote, a fundamental truth or proposition serving as the foundation for belief or action. It is a rule or belief governing one's personal behavior, okay? That's the Oxford Dictionary definition there, okay? Now, when we speak of kingdom principles, principles as it pertains to God's kingdom, we're talking about rules to live by as citizens of God's kingdom, truths that are at the very foundation of God's kingdom. And let me be clear from the get-go, as I tried to emphasize last week as well, this is not a list of things that we must do in order to become Christians. You see, the only way that that we become a Christian is by grace through faith by placing your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so what we have here in this sermon about the kingdom life is what our lives ought to look like as citizens of God's kingdom. It is a description of who we should be. It is a description of what we should do as citizens of God's kingdom, as believers and as followers of Christ. Now our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. And so if you have your Bible with you and you haven't already done so, will you please make your way to the book of Luke chapter 6. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, some of the chairs around you have Bibles underneath them. Feel free to reach down and borrow one of those. We do think it's important that you follow along in the Word, that you read what it says for yourself. Okay? All right. Luke chapter 6, you guys there? Once you're there, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different version, please do your best to follow along. Luke continues his account of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain with the following in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Verse 37, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, Shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We're going to stop right there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word. 
And Lord, I do pray and I do hope that as we've opened your word, Lord, that we've also opened our hearts to what you would desire to say to us today. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear that your spirit uh, wants to say, Lord, we do trust, we do believe that you do want to speak to us. Lord, that you haven't gathered us all here uh, for, for no reason, Lord, but, but that you want to meet with us. You want to commune with us. Lord, you want to teach us and to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to yield ourselves to you and to that work this morning. May you be honored, may you be glorified, and may you have free reign in this place. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As I already mentioned, I've entitled this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain as Kingdom Principles. And principles are fundamental truths that we live our life by. They are rules to follow. Rules that dictate how we believe, how we act. Now, interestingly, there are in our text no less than 16 commands that Jesus gives. 16 verbs that Jesus uses in the imperative mood, which speaks of a command. It speaks of an order that's given from a higher authority. You see, these are non-negotiables when it comes to living as citizens of God's kingdom. These are rules to follow. They are principles that are to be followed as citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I don't want you to be scared, okay? We are not going to look at all 16 of these commands individually, okay? I think if I tried to give you a 16-point sermon, that would definitely be more than a three-part message. So uh, we're not going to do that uh, this morning, okay? What I'm going to end up doing uh, is we're going to break down these verses and these commands into different sections that I believe can be summarized as a whole. And then we'll take a quick look at some of the commands uh, in each section and we'll note how they apply and how they play out in our own lives. So with that, we're going to turn our focus to our text and we're going to look to this first section in verses 27 through 31. To start off, we see in these verses that the first principle of being a citizen of God's kingdom involves loving unconditionally. Okay, loving unconditionally. We are to love God and to love others. And the kind of love that God requires from us is a special kind of love. You see, in English, we have one word for love. I can say, you know, I love football. Okay, I'm a big football fan. Okay, I grew up playing football and I like watching football. I love football. I can say, I love a fresh cup of coffee in the morning. I can say, I love my new road bike, which I do. Um... Um, I can say, I love my family, okay? And I can say, I love my kids, and I love my wife. And I use the same word to describe my feelings for a wide range of things. But hopefully you all would understand that my love for coffee and, and football doesn't come close to my love for my family and for my wife, right? But in English, we, we use the same word. Not so in the Greek. Okay, in the Greek, there are different words that are translated as love. There is uh, phileo love, okay, which speaks of a brotherly affection. Okay, the city of Philadelphia, phila, is brotherly uh, love. Delphia is a city. It's the city of brotherly love. 
And so this kind of love is the kind of love that you have for a close friend, uh, uh, someone that is very dear to you. There is eros, uh, or eros love, which is used to describe a romantic love. It's where we get our English word erotic from. Okay, there is storge uh, with love, which speaks of the kind of love that you have within a family. It speaks of the love that a parent has for their child. And then there is agape love, the kind of love that's mentioned in our text this morning six different times. This is the kind of love that we are commanded to have for all people. It is the kind of love that God loves us with. It is a love that isn't conditioned upon how we are treated. It isn't conditioned on whether or not it is deserved or not. To love like this is, is not natural. It is a gift from God because God is, in fact, agape love. Okay, that's what First John chapter 4, verse 16 tells us. John writes, God is love. It's that word agape. God is agape. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. We know this kind of love, well, because God first loved us. And he demonstrated this kind of love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God manifested his love toward us by sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world that we might live through him. And John writes, beloved, if God so loved us, okay, with that agape kind of love, John says that we also ought to love one another. We also ought to agape one another. And so our very first kingdom principle is that we love one another with this kind of love. The kind of love that demonstrates itself through selfless sacrifice. The kind of love that isn't dependent upon how people treat us or whether or not people deserve our love. In our text, Jesus gives us a number of commands that describe ways in which we can love people with this kind of love. And we'll kind of go through them quickly. In verse 27, Jesus states, love your enemy. This is something that's totally contrary to what people believe and think today. It is contrary to even what people believed and taught even back in that day as well. We're told in Matthew's record of this teaching from Jesus, we're told that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. You see, the rabbis of that day, they taught people to love their enemies, but they also taught, well, it's okay to hate your, uh, excuse me, to love your neighbors, but it was okay to hate your enemies. But Jesus raises the bar. He states that our love must not just be for our neighbors, but even for our enemies. Those that are against us those that are in opposition to us, who are hostile toward us. That's what that word enemy uh, speaks of. We are to show them love. And really, this is how God loved us. Even while we were at enmity with God, He still loved us. He still sent His Son for us. God loved us when we were enemies with Him, and He expects us to love those who are at enmity with us as well. Jesus also commands, do good to those who hate you. And I do believe the idea here is in connection to people hating you for the Son of Man's sake, as described in verse 22. We looked at that last week. When people hate you because you're a believer, when they revile you and they exclude you, they hate you for the Son of Man's sake, we're to respond to these people by doing good 
to them. Again, this is not typically what we want to do to those who hate us. We often want to do something to them, but it isn't usually good. Okay? The word good in the Greek, it's translated a number of different ways in the English. It speaks of treating someone nobly um, or commendably or excellently, honorably, beautifully. When people hate you, we are to respond by doing well by them, honoring them, commending them, treating them respectfully. We must understand something very important, that hatred only breeds more hatred. James tells us that the wrath of man It does not produce the righteousness of God. And so don't get all worked up. Don't get all heated up when people hate you. Instead, do good to them and let the Lord deal with the situation. Next, Jesus commands, bless those who curse you. The word curse here means to wish anyone evil or ruin. Listen, there will be times in your life where people will simply desire evil. They will desire ruin for your life because of perhaps a perceived slight or possibly just because they want to see you pulled down from some perceived pedestal that they think that you're on. You know, my pastor uh, down in Okinawa, Pastor Rick Barnett, he had this happen to him back in the day uh, prior to serving full-time in ministry and Prior to us both moving to Japan, uh, we used to work together at Nike Town in Orange County, California. And my pastor, uh, Rick, he was always reading his Bible in the break room, always praying, always living his faith very boldly. And there was someone at Nike that launched an investigation against him simply because this person couldn't believe someone could be that squeaky clean. And it kind of just drove him bonkers. And so he brought false accusations against Rick, tried to say that he was doing some shady stuff, and then after the investigation was concluded, Nike had to give Rick a a formal apology. They were very uh, fearful that he was going to sue them uh, for defamation of character. He didn't do that. Um, The guy ended up having, he was released, dismissed. and, but God ended up using that situation to show Rick that it was time to leave Nike, go into the ministry full-time, move to Japan. He did so within a few months after that. And so God even used that negative situation, turned it around into something positive. But, but that's not the point that I want to make here. The point is there will be people that sometimes just want to see you fail. They want to see you ruin. You know, Satan, he looked at Job in this same manner. You guys may be familiar with the account of Job. Okay? Satan wanted to ruin Job's life simply because he thought he was up on some sort of pedestal. That God was blessing him excessively. He wanted to see his life brought to ruins in hopes that he would turn from God and curse God to his face. Listen, these things will happen. And how are we to respond? Jesus says we are to bless them. Now, this isn't one of those southern blessings where we say, bless their heart, you know, and we really don't mean that, right? No, this carries with it the idea of of wanting and, and asking for God's divine favor to be upon someone, to overflow them. It's like praying number six over them. Okay, you guys know number six, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
This is an example of how we're to respond when people curse us, when they desire ill for us. We're to bless them. We are to desire God's favor upon them. Jesus also told his disciples to pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, again, I do want to be clear here. When it says to pray for those who spitefully use you, this isn't talking about one of David's imprecatory prayers, okay? David had a few of those in Psalms, if you're familiar with some of the imprecatory prayers. Uh, Psalm 69, David prayed to God, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. He prayed in Psalm 58, He prayed against the wicked, asking God, break their teeth in their mouth, O Lord. Okay, that's not the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about here, okay? David had some issues, okay? He was a a man of war, okay? These are not the kind of prayers Jesus had in mind when he told his disciples to pray for those who spitefully used them. The idea is that we would lift these people to the Lord, that we would pray for them, that we would intercede on their behalf that we would ask god to do a a mighty work of his spirit upon their lives that they would be saved that they would be yielded to the lord that they would be submitted to him this is how we're to pray for those that spitefully come against us jesus commands to offer the other cheek when someone strikes you on the one cheek and now i don't believe that Jesus is advocating that you allow yourself to be a a human punching bag, okay? Or that you should never practice self-defense. I do not believe that's what this is teaching. When we read of how Matthew recorded this portion, we see that he used the word slap. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Luke records the word strike, which can mean to slap or strike, like a punch. Uh, But based upon Matthew's context, I think what we are more than likely talking about here is more of a slap on the face, And because of that, I'm led to believe that what Jesus is really talking about here involves not seeking retaliation and revenge when someone offends you by slapping you on the face. Instead, take the the offense. Take the insult and offer the other cheek instead of retaliating or seeking revenge. You know, it might help you to kind of picture it. This is how I pictured it in my mind. Think of it this more like how people were portrayed back in the day. They had their gloves and they, you know, come up to someone that offended them and they pull their glove off and they, you know, slap them in the face or something like that. They use their glove, right? It, it was a, an act of shame. It was, a, it was an insult uh, and that was usually done out in public for people to say, you, you wronged me and I'm going to, you know, do this slap in the face uh, to, as a gesture uh, of my ridicule or my, you know, the shame that you should feel. Jesus commands us not to return insult for insult, but rather turn the other cheek as if to offer an opportunity to be insulted again before we ever would return the slap or before we would ever seek vengeance. Because here's the problem, you guys. For most of us, maybe not you guys, okay? Maybe just for me. I don't want to speak for you, okay? I'll just say in general, we'll say, okay? In general, most of us, that when we retaliate, when we seek out our own vengeance, we don't want to just return slap for slap. We want to take it a step further, okay? We want to one-up them, okay, to return unto them twofold as a way of teaching someone a lesson, as if to say, hey, don't mess with me, bro. You know, you do this, and and I'm going to do even worse to you. That's our natural sinful tendency. 
And Jesus doesn't want us operating under our sinful impulses where we just respond and, and we one-up the, the, the offense. We're to leave matters of vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Paul writes the following in Romans, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let God handle it. Trust that if you've been wronged, okay, that God sees it, He'll make it right. He will avenge those situations where we've been wrong, where we've been insulted. Jesus said, From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Interestingly, the verb here, do not withhold, it's the only verb form that's not written in the imperative mood. Instead, it's written in the subjunctive. Uh, the subjunctive mood normally presents uh, the verbal action as being probable or intentional. So here in our text, uh, as a negative, it's saying not to intentionally withhold your tunic when someone takes away your cloak. The taking away of the cloak actually isn't talking necessarily about someone criminally stealing from you. Another look over in Matthew's gospel gives us a clearer picture of what's being intended here. Matthew writes that Jesus said, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And so it would seem that Jesus is talking about people suing you, trying to take away your earthly possessions through the court system. The cloak, it's your outer garment that you would walk around in, you would even sleep in. The tunic was the inner garment, the one that was close to your flesh. If we were to liken it to our clothing today, uh, we would say that the cloak might represent our coat, while our tunic would be more reminiscent of a, of a shirt or even our, uh, an undershirt or underwear. And so we see that Jesus is teaching his disciples that if someone's trying to take you to court to take your coat away from you, go ahead and be willing to give them your shirt as well. Okay? Have you ever heard the phrase that a, a person would be willing to give you the shirt off of their back? You ever heard someone say that of someone? That person's really good guy. That, that you know, gal, she's a really good gal. She'll give you the shirt off her. Maybe it's better for he. He'll give you the shirt off of his back. You know, like we, we say that, right? And it's an indication of someone that's, you know, very generous, very kind. Um, um, it actually speaks uh, uh, of someone that's willing to give no matter the sacrifice that's required. And I believe the saying could be traced back to Jesus' teaching here, this idea uh, of, hey, if someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic too. You know, go ahead and just give it to them. The next thing Jesus said in verse 30 seems to be dealing with the same issue. He says, give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. The wording is very similar here. It seems to once again deal with the idea of people perhaps suing you, trying to take away your goods. It's the same exact word that's used when Jesus referred to people taking away your cloak in the previous verse. And the idea is the same. Give to those who ask for something. Don't hold back from those that want to take uh, away from you. Don't be so bound to your possessions that they become more important than meeting the needs of someone else or helping another person out or even people that are trying to take from you or sue you. Don't sweat it. Okay, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about people suing one another and going to court against one another, especially believers. He said, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Is, is losing your shirt going to really cost you that much? Okay, why not just accept the wrong? Why not just let yourself be cheated? Why do we allow temporary possessions to get in the way of having lasting relationships? It is far better to allow yourself to be wronged 
and to win your brother over than it is to go to court to fight it out there and maybe win your court case, but lose an opportunity to develop a lasting relationship. The cost of fighting against it is greater than the potential loss of a shirt or a cloak or other earthly possessions. Lastly, Jesus said in verse 31, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. This is what is commonly referred to as the golden rule. You may have heard that before. Okay? Uh, the kingdom of this world has a golden rule. It states whoever has the gold rules. Okay? And that's the way of this world. Okay? If you've got money, you get to say what happens and what, what goes. That's not the golden rule for those who are part of the kingdom of God. The golden rule in God's kingdom is to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Okay? Do you want people to love you? Do you want people to be kind to you? Do you want people to be gracious and merciful and forgiving towards you? Anybody here want that? Yeah, I, I, I do. <laughs> okay. Then be that same way towards others. You yourself be loving. You be kind. You be gracious and merciful and forgiving towards others. Jesus added in Matthew's account that by following the golden rule that you would be fulfilling the law and the prophets, which brings us full circle back to love. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Paul wrote in Romans, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so we see the biggest and most important kingdom principle is to love one another. That is what separates us. That is what marks us, identifies us as followers of Christ. Jesus said, they will, you will know that these are my disciples by your love for one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If we want to know, hey, has this person been walking with the Lord? Does this person have an active walk with the Lord? We ought to see the most important thing we ought to see is love. And that's the first and primary principle. But there are a few other things that we can pick out from our text as we continue on. Let's take a look at our next section, verses 32 through 34. Luke writes, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. We'll stop right there. The next kingdom principle we see in these verses involves living a holy life. As Christians and as citizens of God's kingdom, we ought to live a holy life. Now you may be thinking to yourself, what do verses 32 through 34 have to do with living a holy life? Let me explain. The word holy simply means set apart for God. As we look at verses 32 through 34, we see that the main emphasis is upon living a different life from the rest of the world. The word sinners, it pops up four times in these three verses. Jesus is asking questions that were contrasting the actions of sinners with the actions of his disciples, his followers. Jesus expected his followers to be different 
from the sinners of this world. He asks, what credit is it to their account if they act just like the rest of the world? Okay, if you only love those who love you, okay, if you only do good to those who do good to you, you only lend to those who are able to pay you back, what sort of credit, what, what sort of benefit is that to you? How does that set you apart from the rest of the world? Because even sinners do those types of things. Jesus commands us to go further than the world is willing to go. Our actions should speak loud and clear that we aren't like other people, that we aren't like sinners of this world. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light, to be different. We're to be holy, to be set apart, consecrated to God and His service. Peter writes, As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. You know, when we speak of us being holy, we're not talking about perfection. Okay? None of us are perfect. We fall short every single day. Nor are we talking about walking around with a holier-than-thou type of attitude. It simply means we live our lives in such a way that we allow the Spirit of God to lead and guide us in the ways of the Lord. It means that we seek after the things of God's kingdom rather than seeking after the things of this kingdom, of the, the kingdom of this world. With the strength and power, the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit within us, we can live a holy life unto the Lord, a life that is distinguishable from the life of sinners, a life that is attractive to those who are lost in this world. You see, people should look at us, and they should see in us something that sets us apart, something that makes us different. People should look at you and say, there's something different about you and the way that you live your life. And hopefully it would even lead to them asking what it is that makes you different. What is it that you have? What is it that it makes you so different? And it would give you that opportunity to tell them about a loving Savior who gave himself for them and let them know that they too can have that kind of life that is set apart for the Lord and share the gospel with, message with them that they might respond. Continuing on, let's look at the next section, verses 35 and 36. He says, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil, and therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Here in verses 35 and 36, I see yet another principle that is part of the kingdom life and the principles that define it. We see here a principle that involves in living a godly life. And you may be wondering, what the difference is between living a holy life and a godly life. There isn't a huge difference, but enough of a difference to go ahead and point it out. You see, the emphasis in verses 35 and 36 is upon being like our Father in heaven. It is about being an imitator of God, doing the things that He does, living our life like He lives His life to the extent that we're able to while in these bodies of flesh. We're, we're, not, we're never going to measure up to God, okay? Uh, we're never going to be perfect for but. We should desire to follow Him. We should desire to imitate Him, to be like Him. We could be set apart from the world. It's possible for us to not do the things of the world and still fall short of living a godly life. We can be different from the world and still not be godly. One is something we do as a negative. We don't act like the world. The other is something we do as a positive. We do act like the Lord. As followers of the Lord, our lives should look like and mirror the life that he lived. 
Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. He wrote to the church in Corinth, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Christ saw his life as a gift to give to his father, an offering and a sacrifice to God. He was fully submitted to fulfilling his father's will. It was all about living for the father and and doing everything the father desired of him. And this should be our desire as well. As followers and imitators of Christ, our heart's desire ought to be to be fully yielded to the father's will. Our life should be about fulfilling the father's will, doing everything the father desires of us. From these verses, we see some of the ways we can do so. We can love our enemies. We can do good. We can lend, hoping for nothing in return. And Jesus promises that our reward in heaven will be great and that we will be acting just like our Father in heaven, who is kind to all, even to the unthankful and evil. We are to be merciful, just as our Father is merciful. The word merciful in the Greek, it means to be compassionate, to be full of mercy. You know, justice... He is getting what we deserve. I've said this many times before, but I think it's just really easy to summarize these things. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Because we are all sinners, we deserve punishment. We deserve death. For the wages of sin is death, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But God is merciful to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And on top of that, he offers to us grace. Grace is getting something we don't deserve, something that we can't earn, something that we cannot merit. It is simply a gift of God. And that's why Romans 6.23 continues saying that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, as followers of the Lord and citizens of God's kingdom, we too ought to show mercy to others. We too ought to be gracious with others. We all love mercy and grace. We all want mercy and grace. Unfortunately, oftentimes we can call for justice when it comes to others, right? We see other people and how they live their life, and you think, God, give them what's coming to them, right? Give them justice, Lord. And then when we blow it, we're like, God, be merciful to me. Be gracious. I blew it, you know? We want mercy. We want grace. And we want justice for everybody else, If we want mercy... We want grace from God and from others, then we ought to be merciful and gracious to those we interact with as well. And this leads me to our final principle found in verses 37 and 38. Take a look at these final verses with me and we'll look to wrap this all up. Jesus continues his sermon. He says, Judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you shall be, or you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We'll stop right there. The principle I see here involves living for eternity. And again, some of you may be thinking, what does living for eternity have to do with what verses 37 and 38 say? Again, I will explain. Really, the basic principle that we see here is that we will reap what we sow. Judgment will lead to more judgment. Condemnation will lead to more condemnation. Forgiveness will lead to more forgiveness. Giving will lead to more giving. God's kingdom is one of reaping and sowing. 
And and when we talk about the principle of reaping and sowing, we are brought to the book of Galatians and what Paul has to say about reaping and sowing. It's in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Okay, and here's here's the application of the reaping and sowing kingdom that we're part of. It's in verse 9. And he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because we are part of a reaping and sowing kingdom, we are to make sure that we persevere, that we don't give up, that we don't grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap what we sow. This is how I come to the principle of living for the eternal. As we do good, as we love unconditionally, as we live holy lives and and godly lives, listen, there can be a temptation sometimes to give up when things aren't going as smoothly as we had hoped. And to do so is extremely short-sighted. We need to be living for the future, living for the eternal. Because God's kingdom is one of reaping and sowing, we know that one day we will reap a reward for living our lives according to these kingdom principles. But listen, I want to forewarn you, okay? Not that it's a warning, but just to put it out there. We will reap what we sow. And as we continue to do good, we will reap good, okay? Um, We will sow good, we will reap good, okay? But it may not be this week. It may not be this month. And it it may not even be this year that you, you reap a harvest from your good deeds. And let me even tell you this. It may not be even be in this lifetime. Okay. But we must never lose sight that we are living for the eternal. The things that we do here and now, they will impact the rest of eternity with God in heaven. You see, if we don't reap on this side of eternity, that means we will reap all the more when we enter into our Lord's presence and he welcomes us home saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so there you have it. Four kingdom principles to live our life by. Rules to follow as citizens of God's kingdom. We're to love unconditionally. We're to live a holy life. We're to live a godly life. And we're to live for the eternal never losing hope in the Lord and trusting that as we live for Him, it will all be worth it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, as we continue just to make our way through this sermon, Lord, I pray that You'd continue to speak to our hearts, continue to mold and shape us. Lord, as we go about our our day and our week, Lord, I pray that these truths, these principles would be... um, lived out in our life. Lord, I pray that we would love with the kind of love that you love. Lord, in and of ourselves, it's just not natural. Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your spirit and that through your spirit, we can love. 
as you've called us to love. We can love our enemies. We can pray for those who spitefully use us. We can bless those who hate us, Lord, uh, and do good to them. Lord, I ask that uh, we would live a life that is holy, a life that is set apart for you, the world around us would know that we love you, that we live our lives for you. Lord, I pray that we would live godly lives, Lord, that it wouldn't be just abstaining from bad things and not doing things that sinners do, but Lord, we'd seek to imitate you, to follow you, to love like you love. And Lord, I pray that we would never lose perspective, we would never lose sight of the reward that awaits us in heaven. You, Lord, are the greatest reward. And Lord, you are worth it all. You're worthy of it all. And so, Lord, we give you our lives afresh and new this, this day. And we call upon your spirit to empower us to live our lives for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.